right, the ushers are bringing around the note sheets, the pencils, and Bibles. So uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll get one to you this morning. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we just sang, uh, Jesus is our glory and our prize. The Lord is so generous to us. We receive blessing upon blessing from Him, but none can match the nearness that we have to God through Christ. And that is our primary blessing. And so it should be uh, no hard labor for us to listen to preaching about Christ. It should be no chore for us to pick up the Word of God and to read the words of Christ. If He is truly our joy and our prize, uh, then learning more about Him and meditating upon the mighty things that define Him and set Him apart as holy from everything else, uh, it it should be a joy to us. And so we hope that this is a time of joy as we enter into this, this moment of learning and growing together in God's Word. Last week, we discussed the nature of the resurrected body, uh, some of the peculiarities of the body that we will have after we die and are buried, and then Christ returns, and He gives us a new body that is different than the body we have now, a transformation of the body that we currently enjoy. It will not be entirely different. It will be a transformation of our current body. We learned that no amount of decay or damage to our current body will prevent someone from Uh, Being resurrected, someone who is sealed in Jesus will surely rise again. Uh, The martyred saints who are burnt to ash will have full vital and restored bodies in in the the return of Christ. And we also talked about how our new bodies will follow the pattern that is set by Christ's resurrection body. And so as we have about 40 days where Christ showed himself resurrected and alive to the church, the physical manifestation that he showed is in some ways a preview of what our lives will likely be like uh, as we enjoy that new resurrected body. And so last week we focused on the vessel that we will have. This week the nature of the event that will bring about the resurrection is going to be our aim and our focus. Um, Resurrection doesn't happen randomly, it happens specifically. It happens at a time that God has ordained. It is at the time of the coming judgment that we will be granted a new physical form. When Christ rose from the dead, a sure victory was won for us. But the fullness of that victory won't be completely realized until all the elect have been given their resurrection bodies and can enter into the new heavens and the new earth to worship Him eternally. And so we must learn to anticipate this promised event in the right ways, not allowing our certainty of it to make us complacent or lazy, awaiting that day with an actively obedient and faithful joy should be our aim. And so we're going to talk about the return of Christ this morning. We're going to celebrate the promised return of Christ in the Lord's table. But first, let's read our passage that we'll be meditating upon. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be finishing up this chapter this morning. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, and I will read through till verse 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the uh, perishable. I'm sorry. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being our good and holy God. We know that the word being before us, we have an eternal proclamation of true events that will surely take place, and we want to be responsible to this knowledge that has been revealed. And so I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be actively absorbing this into our minds and our hearts, that if there is a sense of conviction that needs to prick our conscience because of a lack of diligence on our part to serve you steadfastly while we await for your return, then God, I pray that you would stir us up to a greater love to you and a stronger commitment to walking in the truth. Father, we pray that if we are downtrodden this morning, if there's someone who comes in with a burden of hopelessness or despair, God, that you would, by this word that you have proclaimed this morning, that you would lift their hearts, that you would help them to understand the mighty power that you have to overcome their sadness, and that you might show them that they can have full fulfillment in the fact that you are good and you have redeemed your people. And so let us, Lord God, desire more of you day by day. Help us to walk in the truths that are on display for us in this text. We love you and thank you for the understanding that you'll provide for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. As Paul draws the theological argument for a bodily resurrection to a conclusion, we've been in that mindset for the past several weeks, a couple months now, we've been preaching on the resurrection of not only Jesus, but the resurrection of his people. He has a couple of more details to instill into his friends in Corinth. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Salvation comes with many blessings, some of which we experience now, others which we will not fully enjoy until our time here on earth is complete. By the blood of Jesus, God's people draw near to God as he adopts them into his holy family. And as his sons and his daughters, Christians receive a legal claim to some of which belongs to the Heavenly Father. Paul points to that here in verse 50 as he reminds the Corinthians that because of God's saving grace, they're set one day to inherit the kingdom of God. The Corinthian letter is not the only place where we hear of this inheritance. It's actually rife throughout the New Testament. Romans 8 Verses 16 through 17, speaking specifically in that chapter about the adoption, says, The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So this inheritance is ours by way of adoption, whereby God brings us into His family. He chooses to do this. He doesn't have to do it. God is perfectly content and fine apart from sinners like us. But for our benefit and so that we might become vessels for his glory. He loves us despite our sin. He washes us clean by the blood of the lamb. And he draws us near to him through his death, burial and resurrection. Praise be to God that we can now count ourselves, if we are Christians, as sons and daughters of the living king of the almighty kingdom that will extend forever. 
And this inheritance that we have through this adoption is not merely speaking about promises made to national Israel. This is something to, to clarify. It refers to an even better inheritance, one that is secured not by our obedience to the covenant, but by Christ's obedience to the covenant. Remember that the nation of Israel were promised a holy land, and that holy land was given to them. But in their covenant, there were sanctions. There were laws that Israel had to follow in order to continue to maintain that holy land. <clears throat> and through their disobedience, we see the need for something greater than a law. We need a law keeper. We need one who is able to fulfill the law by perfectly living it out in obedience to God. And since there wasn't a man or woman on earth who was capable of doing that, God took on flesh himself. God the Son came and dwelt among his people and lived according to that very law that national Israel had been given. And in fulfilling the law, he deserved to be exalted and he deserved to be glorified. But rather than demand that for himself, he instead voluntarily went to the cross and was killed like a criminal, like a sinner in our place. All who trust upon the name of Jesus Christ, therefore, the sins that they've committed in breaking God's law, the wrath that they have earned by those sins have been put upon Christ. He was crushed so that we might be exonerated for the sins that we have committed in breaking God's law. And by being washed clean, God has made it possible now for us to have a close, near fellowship to Him, that we might be in His home, that we might feast at His table, that we might be called after His name. And it is just as much a promise to the Gentile believer as it was to the Jew who would trust in Yahweh. In Ephesians 3.6, the scripture says, this mystery, is, or this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. <clears throat> and so this new covenant, which is a better covenant than, one, than the one it replaced, is not about ethnicity or, or, or a particular nation. It is a gospel call that goes out to all the nations. Anyone of any ethnicity or background, if they see the law of God, if they see their inability to keep it and, and are convicted by that, if the Spirit stirs them up to repentance and they trust in the work that Jesus Christ did, then their penalty is paid by Christ. And from that moment forward, they belong to the Lord God. Those who weren't born Jewish are not an exception, for this inheritance is ours not by birthright, but by faith. And the promise is bestowed by God unto people of all types and ages and genders. We even see that in 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. <clears throat> and so here, one of the gospel calls in God's intention for the family is for husbands to carefully look after their wives and to treat them with dignity and respect and, and to protect them. And part of that is, is clarified there where it's shown that that wife is not, as a weaker vessel, a lesser creation of God, but they are co-heirs alongside men who trust in the Lord God, co-heirs of Christ, of the promises of the new covenant. And so it's not about ethnicity, it's not about gender, it's not about how much money you have or what you have done, it's about what Christ has done for you. <clears throat> it is, in fact, a much better inheritance than the one that you and I both had by our birth. There was a birthright that we were, we were born with, and that birthright is, a, unfortunately, a terrible birthright. In a way, the Christian trades his natural inheritance for the heavenly one. We were born entitled to the inheritance of, that, of Adam, the first man, 
he left us an inheritance of rebellion, an inheritance of death. But through Christ, the new and better Adam, we have eternal life as our inheritance and a claim to the unshakable kingdom that will be the everlasting home of the saints. But our current bodies are not fit to dwell in that kingdom. As we sit today, we are not fit to walk in the streets of gold. <clears throat> that is not because the new kingdom in reference is only a spiritual kingdom. We talked about this in part last week. It's not a non-physical place, this kingdom that God will one day establish. Don't let verse 50 confuse you. When Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he's not hinting that the new kingdom will be a, a purely spiritual place without physical bodies. That's not the case. That would be totally inconsistent with the whole argument he's been developing here throughout chapter 15. Last week I mentioned just briefly that when we read about the new heavens and the, earth, uh, the new earth, when we read about that in Revelation chapter 21, it's hard to ignore just how physical that description is. And so I want to kind of go back over that in a little bit more detail. If you look at uh, Revelation verses 3 through 4 in chapter 21, it talks about this new heavens and this new earth as a dwelling place, a physical place where a person can go. God will dwell there with man. So the resurrected Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest, will be there with us. We will see him face to face. And in that place, there won't be any more physical death. Consequently, mourning and weeping and pain will be done away with entirely, having passed away with all the consequences of sin and the fall of man. The lack of weeping there is not a result of us losing our physical bodies. It's not saying as spirits we can't weep anymore because the word of God says that God will physically wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I know some might say, well, that's just a figure of speech. It could be, but then just a few verses later, he gets into more details that are quite literal in their physicality. Verses 10 through 27 describe the new heavens and the new earth like this. It, it is a holy city itself. The new Jerusalem comes down out of, out of the heavens. It is seen from a great high mountain. It is fortified with a great high wall. It has 12 physical gates to protect it, built upon 12 sturdy foundations, unshakable and firm. The physical measurements of that wall and of the city itself are described in some detail, which would be misleading if the new heavens and the new earth was not a physical place. Specific numerical measurements are given and recorded by John. And the materials used to build the wall and other portions of the city are cataloged there in chapter 21. John notes in that vision that there is no temple in the city, nor is there any sun, both physical things. For the temple is Jesus. Instead of going to a building to offer praise to the idea of Christ, we go and offer our our offerings to Him in praise. We read maybe a little bit about that earlier in the book of Revelations where the, the, tw um, the 24 elders who sat around the throne put their crowns at His feet and offered up praise and thanksgiving to Him for He was great and mighty and mightier than, and, than any who ever could exist. And so there's no physical building as a temple because the physical Christ Himself will be our temple. And it talks about how there's no need for a son because Christ will provide the physical light that is needed in that place. You simply enjoy the radiance of Jesus when you are in the new heavens and the new earth. And so it is a physical place, but one so unlike the world that it will replace that the flesh and blood that we think of, 
flesh and blood as we currently understand them will have to undergo, uh, undergo a radical change in order for us to be of good use in that kingdom. In verse 51, Paul adds another detail to our understanding of the event that's going to bring about our resurrection. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <clears throat> now, in preparing for this, I was thinking about the fact that many people today are convinced that the end of the world will surely come with some catastrophe, some crisis that wipes out the entire human race, perhaps all of life, period. And very commonly, it is assumed that the catastrophe that's going to trigger this end will not be some random occurrence that happens outside of us, but will actually be the result of man's actions. Some people believe that mankind, through his boldness, will create some sort of a a super virus that will plague the world to death. I don't know if it'll be made in Wuhan, but it, it, people think that human beings will someday misstep so badly that we'll poison ourselves. Others think it could be environmental collapse due to man's neglect of the earth. Uh, global warming, no doubt, is the next great crisis that we'll be instructed to fear. Men will be so neglectful or so greedy that he'll ruin the planet and the planet will just shut down. Or it could be the consequence of nuclear fallout. And with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we almost immediately began to hear talk of this marking the inevitable beginning of the Third World War. And with a conflict of that scale involving a nation with military capabilities of Russia, people would wonder, they would fear naturally, if this might trigger an escalation that leads to the eradication of humanity through the weapons we make for ourselves. But as much as mankind is fond of believing he is the most important creature on the planet and that the fate of all things rests upon his own shoulders, that kind of thinking is very far from the truth. Oh yes, the world will come to an end one day, but it won't be directly the result of some action of mankind. And there will be many people still alive when that end is marked. We see that here in verse 51. Because Paul says, we shall not all sleep. That might be a little bit of a confusing phrase to some, but it is a Hebrew euphemism, a phrase that is often used by biblical authors when they're trying to say a difficult thing in a sensitive or softer way. We will not all sleep means we'll not all have to deal with physical death. Some of us will be alive when Christ returns and they will not have to experience the extinguishment of their physical bodies. There will be a last generation of human beings on the planet, but their end will not be decided by some blunder of man. It will be according to the perfect plan of God in heaven who has already determined when the last baby will be born, when the last sun will set, and when the last person will be saved from death to life by the grace of Jesus Christ. All of that is known to God and will take place upon his timeline. When that happens, the time will have completed its task. Time itself will be done, and Jesus will return to earth to complete the last leg of his mission here. He will come to judge all things. But those Christians who are alive at the time of his coming will not have to face judgment, at least not at the same kind of judgment that elicits the rightful wrath of God. When we speak of this second coming of Christ, we know that Christ will come wielding the sword in that moment. And all those who do not have Christ as their advocate, as their Lord and Savior, if Jesus' righteousness is not covering them, then all who remain will experience the full wrath of God. And those who went before will experience that wrath 
for eternity as final judgment is rendered upon their rebellious souls. But Christians will not have to experience that wrath. It's already been felt and tasted for us by Jesus Christ himself. So when we as believers stand before the God of the universe in the final day, we will not stand alone. Jesus will be our advocate and will stand by our side. And when God looks to our record to see what we have done, he'll find every sin that we have committed in our lives already washed away by the perfect blood of the Lamb. And in its place, the righteousness of God's Son will testify that we belong in the kingdom of heaven, that we are indeed his sons and daughters. When that day of judgment comes, friends, there will be great destruction but not for the Christians who live in that moment. There will be no need for them to physically die. Instead, they will experience a transformation of physical sorts, and they'll take on a new form that their brothers and sisters who preceded them in death will acquire in the same moment of completion. And so verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. According to what Paul writes here, this will not be a long, drawn-out process. Some people who read chapter 15 try to piece together a particular chronology of exactly what order the events of the Day of Judgment will occur, but that's not probably all that helpful because Paul makes it very clear here that it will all happen in the span of a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Essentially, all these things will take place at the same time. Trumpet will signal the end. Christ will return. Judgment will happen on the wicked. Resurrection will happen so that those who are dead in Christ and their bodies are in the grave will experience the rising of their new bodies. All of this is going to happen in a moment. So what can be determined by this? The victory of God will not be an epic battle in the literal definition of the word that we have come familiar with. Because epic implies great struggle. It implies long periods of back and forth striving. But that's not what the final battle is going to be like. On September 2nd, 1945, Japan officially surrendered to the Allied forces. This was six years and one day after Germany had started World War II essentially by invading the neighboring country Poland. In those difficult six years, 30 major countries became directly involved in the conflict between Germany and its Axis allies and the United Kingdom and its allied troops. The tide of that war shifted back and forth numerous times with advantages turning at key points such as the fall of France in 1940, the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and the first atomic attacks ever in Nagasaki and Hiroshima in August of 1945. World War II impacted the vast majority of the people on the planet and has resulted in the involvement of 100 million troops and also, sadly, uh, saw more than 10 million civilian casualties by genocide. That, however, is nothing like how the final battle will be accomplished. When Christ comes, there will not be some great opposition ready for him. He will not have to dig in and fight hard. We read here in verse 52 that the last trumpet will sound. Very commonly, the blast of a trumpet was used as the signal to indicate that a war had begun. Move forward, troops. It is time to engage. 
But in the case of the last battle, the trumpet will signal simultaneously the beginning and the end of the conflict. For in the twinkling of an eye, it has just as quickly come to its decisive end. No one can stand before the Lord God. The resistance of man's sinfulness in the arena of God's creation is only being allowed in so much as God intends to use it to show by contrast his own perfect holiness. And by patience and by ongoing mercy, he displays his loving grace that extends even to those who have scorned him and broken his law. So don't be confused, though God is very patient now and he allows sin to have a place in creation so that he might show us how he is in all ways superior to what is wicked. When the final end has come, there will be no opposition. Just as he spoke all of creation into existence, so too with a word will the opposition be undone. Sin doesn't abound in the world because God is waiting for the right ally to help turn the tide of the battle, friends. He needs no help to do what he intends to do. And what he intends to do is to systematically save his chosen people from destruction by the preaching of the word and the advancement of his church. And so the roots of that final battle are being laid now. And yes, he does call us, as I prayed earlier, to be Christian soldiers in his army. And he gives us the equipment to prevail. He gives us the strength to stand firm. He gives us the motivation to be steadfast and to not give up this fight. In the moment that God has decided, though, and not a second sooner, not a moment later, the trumpet blast will signal the completion of all God intends to accomplish through the current history that we are involved in. His patience will have become complete. And any soul at that moment that does not have Christ will have to answer for their crimes against the kingdom of heaven. So just even as I think about that and, and preach that to you, this is not in my notes, but if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, this day that I preach about right now is a reality. I urge you, consider the weight of your sin. When you break the law of God, you do not just offend a neighbor who is much like you. You're not just offending a peer. You are offending the one who gave you life and has put breath in your lungs. You cannot oppose the giver and sustainer of life and hope to survive. Plead with Christ. Confess your sin today and trust that through his means, he has made a way for you to be whole, for you to be pardoned from the sin that you have committed against him. I urge you, consider the importance of salvation this morning. Turn with me to John chapter 5 for a moment, church. There are two descriptive passages that shed light into the nature of this decisive event that brings about the resurrection of the saints. And in John chapter 5, we're going to look at one of those this morning. I don't have time to exposit this whole passage, but I think there's enough plain proclamation here that reading this and one other passage will help to round out our understanding of what this, this day, this event will be like. So in John chapter 5, we're looking at verses 25 through 29 right now. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in his self. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, we cannot marvel at that when it comes. Let us be ready for it. Let us anticipate that this is the means by which God will turn the tide of history. Jesus has been given authority, says this passage. All authority on heaven and earth, in fact, is his. And that is why the church can and must be on mission for the Lord today. Because in his authority, he has commanded us to do just that. And so the church must continue in the work until the day of judgment comes to pass. And when it does, those who are in Christ but have left their bodies in the grave will rise and receive their new bodies. Those who continue in the work of God and have not yet died will experience that transformation without tasting death. One other passage. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn to the right there in your New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For those who we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There again is that euphemism. To fall asleep means those who have died, those who have experienced physical death. The resurrection is not something that that they're going to miss out on. In fact, the resurrection is for them as well. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So thinking about the end times is not a waste of our time, friends. I know some are so practical that they think heaven is beyond what I can imagine, and God will work all that out one day, so I'll think about it when it comes. I used to have that mentality to some degree. But the more I look at the testimony of Scripture, the more that I see that the promises of heaven are to be a very useful encouragement for us here today. That while we strive in the not yet, as we walk through this life where Christ has not yet returned, that the hope of a sure tomorrow will be fuel to us, will encourage us, and will help us to stand steadfast as we march forward for the Lord and His work. The triumphant return of Christ should be something we anticipate and something that encourages us. So let us be emboldened by the perfect plan of God that it involves a new heaven, that it involves a new earth, and that in order for us to experience that new heavens and new earth the right way, it also involves involves a reimagination of our physical bodies. The transformation of temporary dwelling places to permanent ones will happen in a moment as well. And this is what Paul's talking about in verse 53 when he says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. I want to pause for a minute and really dig into that phrase, put on. Putting on language should not be strange to us if we've been studying through God's scripture. It is consistent with the idea that new bodies are transformed, that they are enhancements of the ones that we have now. We don't leave our old bodies behind in the grave. They are raised anew and they are improved upon. They are are made immortal. And so this idea of putting something on our bodies is like an upgrade, an improvement of what we were. 
It is consistent with language that we hear throughout the New Testament of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. In Matthew 28, we, we hear this parable of a certain wedding feast where Christ, in speaking of his return and bringing the bride, the church of God, back to himself for the consummation of all glory, that those who are invited in are those you wouldn't expect to be there. There are people that really didn't earn a place at the table, but there are those who, who God chose by his own women will. And there are those who weren't even prepared to come to a wedding feast, and yet he has provided for them what? Clothes. Garments that are fit for a, an event of such esteem. And all who, for whom he has provided garments will be, uh, will be properly equipped for this wedding feast of celebration. And then in that parable in Matthew 22, it even speaks of one who, who somehow came into the feast, but God did not give them garments. They are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that individual doesn't get to experience the joy of that celebration. They are cast out into utter darkness. And so we have to understand that this putting on language is something that God uses in his revelation again and again to make us think about how he makes us something that we are not. It's not something that we do for ourselves. It's not something that we hone to a, a beauty or a skill that we didn't have before through our own efforts or our, our own minds, but it is something that is gifted to us. He clothes us in a righteousness that is otherwise alien to our sinful human selves. Don't forget the words that appear in the second Corinthian letter. In chapter 5, where Paul is going to talk to this same group of people, he says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, referring to the physical body, the limited one that we're in right now, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Contextually, we know that some of these Corinthians were preaching that there was no such thing as a resurrection at all. They desired to be unclothed. They wanted to be rid of this physical body. But God is saying through Paul, no, do not think in those terms. Our goal is not to become unhuman. Our goal is not to become angels or apparitions or spiritual beings on some unknown plane. Our goal is to be what God has made us to be, which is a physical being with soul and spirit to worship the Lord God forever. And so as we ended last week, we spoke of the already and not yet tension a little. We talked about how the fact that a new body won't come until the end, but that doesn't mean that the new spirit that is within us can't have an immediate impact on the people who are around us. And indeed it must. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And then we looked at the Greek there and, and talked about how that term we shall can also be translated and probably should be translated as we do also bear the image of the man of heaven. We do bear it now, currently, in our present states. And so to see that plainly, take note of how this putting on of Jesus, though it will be one day perfected in the final day of judgment, nevertheless is partially realized in the here and the now. Galatians 3.27, this will be on the screen for you. The Apostle Paul writes to that congregation, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Not will one day put on Christ. You have put on Christ. So if you are a believer today, you're more than yourself. You are yourself bearing the image of God walking in such a way that your life now reflects 
the power of Christ's obedient life. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Having just described a myriad of the sins that tend to entangle the men of the world who do not look upon Christ, Paul then declares in verse 20, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And in some ways, this is a theme of the whole letter that we have been growing and maturing through as we've studied over the last year plus. These Corinthian believers have Christ. They know Him as Savior. And yet they have been living in the old self. They've been allowing the patterns of how they used to walk this world independently of God, they've been allowing those things to now infiltrate once again their behavior and their mindset and their attitudes, and it's beginning to hurt the church, its unity, its love, its testimony. And so the apostle Paul comes to them in letter and says, brothers and sisters, you've been given such a great gift, and he has confidence that they are true believers and that they are really indeed saved in Christ. And he says, be who you've been made to be. Stop trying to drift back into what you were. Walk as those who have been given confidence, not in yourselves, but in the one who died for you. Be holy and pure and don't walk in the ways of the world, even if it makes you stand out as strange, even if others will reject you and you'll have to forego some of the things that people in your culture do to stay together as a community, as people. If you are going to be offending Christ, then you have no business doing those things that they're doing. Walk as light among the darkness. Look too to Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. So here we see this language of putting on the glory of Christ. And it is most perfectly experienced in the second coming of Christ when we get that new glorious body. But it is right now experienced in part in this world as we walk through our lives now and as we trust him and serve him and believe that he is making us more like him even in this world. So take note. There is an aspect of this victory that we have not yet seen. But there's also an aspect that impacts the way we live now. Hold on to that. We're going to return to it at the end. There's a few more things I want to point out. Verses 54 through 56, Paul adapts a language from Isaiah and from Hosea to stir up the spirits of those who look forward to the return of the king. And in some ways, this is the crescendo of the passage. It's a beautiful passage that many of you have, will recognize right away If you've been to Christian funerals, you've probably heard this preached at funerals several times. But it speaks about how when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the exchange of temporary bodies for permanent ones will mark a distinct change in the battle that we're fighting. 
at this decisive moment, there will be no more left for death to affect. Death will have passed away. It will have died itself and will have been rendered without power. Death has no power over that which has died. And death has no power over that which cannot die. So when Christ exchanges this temporary body which fades and corrupts and, 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 and ruins away, and gives us a body that can never fade, then death is no longer a part of the equation. The last enemy is completely defeated. And that's why Paul says that death is swallowed up here. How? In the victory of Jesus that has rendered all judgment complete and finished. And we spoke of this passage at some length in a previous sermon, so I'm only going to touch on a couple details that I didn't mention before. Man's greatest enemy is exposed as powerless over him in so much as man is reconciled to the God who has all power over life and death. And it may make you think of, in some ways, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is giving a warning to the people who are listening to his preaching. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who's Jesus talking about? He's saying, fear God. These people who wield the sword against you or who are oppressive to you and throw you into prison, don't be so afraid of them. Their verdict is temporary. If you are in Christ, if you are following after the word of God, then there is no one who can kill you permanently. The worst they can do is accelerate the process of you receiving your, your new body. They can put your body in the grave, but they can't terminate you. And so there is a boldness here for the Christian who looks forward to the return of Christ, knowing that even if in their obedience to him here, they should come under persecution, they should experience imprisonment or uh, oppression or even death, that there will be life for them after the second coming of Christ. Once we've been granted the promise of eternal life, the power that death might hold over us is null and void. So two of death's minions are described here as sin and law. And that might be a little bit strange to us in part. Sin is pretty natural, right? Sin is the sting, the weapon by which death strikes down those who are not trusting in Jesus for the wages of sin is death. But the second one is a little bit strange there. How is the law the weapon of death? The law is only an enemy to those who are not in Christ. And so the power of sin is the law in that it creates a legal and binding covenantal framework that condemns the heart of every sinner who does not have a perfect legal advocate. It is because there is a right and a wrong, and God declares that right and that wrong, and he codifies it in the Decalogue, which we're learning about on Sunday nights. Come and join us at 6 o'clock for the evening service if you've got time today. It is because there is a, a good and an evil that, that we have to face a judgment when Christ returns. The law reveals our rebellious hearts and exposes our unwillingness to come under the authority of God. That is, unless through grace he has brought us under his authority. Unless it is by his merciful hand that he has given us a new heart. And now the law has become something different from us. It's no longer this condemning enemy to us, but it is a tool by which God uses to grow us. It is a, is a, a picture of Christ's loveliness and his attributes and his grace. It is, it is a tool that God uses to restrain evil in the world so man won't be as bad as he could be. But apart from Christ, make no mistake, the law is your enemy. If you do not have the grace of Jesus Christ in your, in your life, then the law of God 
line after line shows you why God has every right to judge you. The last verse of the chapter, though, offers a, a faithful application of the amazing realities of the resurrection event. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I'm so glad that all of this talk about tomorrow ends with this little, this little snippet. It might seem a little strange at first. We've got this great, beautiful, poetic crescendo of death having no sing and death having no victory, that Christ is, is the one who triumphs. But Paul, seeing how someone might take that and use it to justify a complacent, unaware, uncareful life, he has included this last sentence, a sentence of application, a sentence that contains four imperatives. These four imperatives that are given here are instructions to the believer who is still here and Christ is yet to come. He tells us, be steadfast. What does that mean? That means that you do not waver, that you know who you are in Christ and you stand firm in that thing. So many people who go forward and say, you know, I know that God is real and I know I need a savior. And they say, I, I think I want to become a Christian. Maybe they pray a prayer. Uh, maybe they sign their name to a document that says they've given their lives to Christ. But Jesus reminds us and warns us that there are different kinds of soil. He talks about the heart like soil. He says the gospel seed is planted here, it's planted there, it's planted over here. And each of these different kinds of soil will have a different response to the gospel. So it is possible for someone in a moment to think, yes, I need salvation, but not truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is possible for one to say, yes, I believe, until the first hint of opposition or the first time that God truly expresses his dominion and authority over them and says, as my child, you can no longer be what you were. And then those who are not steadfast, those who refuse to stand in the grace and the light of Christ, reveal that that seed that may have sprouted for a moment truly had no roots and was not true faith. So be steadfast, friends. And even that steadfastness doesn't come from you. So pray for an endurance. Pray that the Lord God would make you stronger to stand. Anticipate resistance, Christians. I think it's, it's good for us that in Ephesians we, we learn that we're supposed to put on the armor of God. We've spent several Sunday mornings and Sunday schools speaking about how that's important. Not, in no small part because it reminds us that there is hostility about. Yes, there is sin within us. Yes, we can tempt ourselves and we can cause ourselves to stumble, but let us not make the mistake of thinking that we live in, a, in a, a peaceful place now that Christ is ours. We have peace within, but around us is sin and temptation. And so friends, be steadfast, be immovable, meaning that you should not be tossed about like the waves of the sea. You should not build your house on a a foundation like sifting, uh, shifting sand. Yesterday I spent uh, most of my Saturday laying a concrete foundation. Not for anything special. My, my chickens are going to have a particularly um, uh, bougie chicken coop after I'm done with this thing, right? Little plants started to grow and get bigger and bigger. And so we're going to make sure that no foxes kill our birds this time, right? So I laid a foundation. I didn't just put the chicken coop on top of sand or on top of the dirt because we know a fox can dig underneath the side of that chicken coop. Ask me how I know. The tears of my children will testify to the difficulties of building your house upon uh, an unfirm foundation. So we are to be unmovable, 
friends. As Christians, we are to stand firm on the promises of God. We are to always be abounding in the work of our Lord. Always being willing to engage in some kind of service to the glory of his great name. Always putting to use the gifts that he has given to us. And Paul's already gone into details with these Corinthians about how those, those gifts are a spectrum of, of blessings and abilities that God renders to the Christian, not just for their own good, but for the good of the church. So be abounding in the work of the Lord. And then fourthly, thinking rightly about your labors regardless of the outcomes, having your mind set on the things that truly matter. We've got to zero in on our faithfulness to God, not on the results of our faithfulness. Results are in the hand of the sovereign king. The goal is not, for me, when I come up to preach, the goal is, well, if I didn't save five people with this message, it was a failure. Those things are absolutely out of my hands. What is in my hand is to faithfully show you that the, the one way to salvation is Jesus Christ. And the one way that you can know Jesus Christ is through the word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit and to point you to him faithfully and then to let the, the work of the Holy Spirit do what I cannot do, which is turn your heart from stone to flesh to change your mind about your need for Christ. So think rightly about your labors. Don't think of them as, as some payment for heaven. Don't think of them as the way that you ante up for the, the blessings that God has given to you, your down payment. No, your good works flow out of the change that God has brought about in you and will complete on the day of his return. So why did Paul end like this? He ended like this because he knew that some hearing about the greatness of Christ's return might then become so fixated on it they might become so, as you might have heard this term, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I think that is often misapplied. But there is a sense in which some believers can think so much about the beauty of heaven that they start to think wrongly about where they're at right now. Paul's aim is not only to inspire, it is also to correct these Corinthians. The Corinthians were falling into this mindset that things of the flesh were temporary, and that the real aim should be to focus on spiritual things to the degree that they were even beginning to downplay or deny the reality of the resurrection. And that has consequences, friends. When we live today with too much of an eye to the future, we run the risk of becoming negligent to the work that God has accomplished in us and desires to accomplish in us tomorrow and today. We begin to confuse our future blessings with present ones. We read about the beauty of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. And we start to think that I should have that now. That God should have given me every blessing in the heavenly places now in such a way that I don't have to face opposition. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to strive or be disciplined. It should just be easy for me. And if we think about that in such terms, we suffer from what is sometimes referred to as an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the way we think about the end and the return. And, and, and like I said before, we are in this already and not yet tension where there are blessings to come, but we're already experiencing some of those blessings here and now as we are putting on Christ, as we are dying to ourselves and conforming our minds to be transformed into the image of Jesus so that we look like him and we begin to speak like him and we begin to act as though he acted. And our priorities are, are ordered in the way that the preeminent one's priorities were ordered. We put Christ first in all things. But when we over-realize uh, over our eschatology, we begin to think so much about what's to come that we stop thinking about the war we're in now. Friends, we are in battle. We've got to engage the world that we live in. Yes, I do at moments stop and think about the glory of heaven 
and think about the fact that that is on the way for all who believe. But in those moments, Christian, do you also think about the fact that there are many who have no idea what is coming? There are many who have bit hook, line, and sinker into this lie that this life is all we have. So use it to your benefit the best you can. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. Nothing else after that. Those people need to hear from you. They need to hear the truth that somebody else cared enough to tell you. They need to hear the message of hope. They need to hear the testimony that Christ was not just a historical figure, but that he died and that he rose on the third day. He was unlike any other historical figure. They need to know that without him, there is peril and destruction awaiting them, but with Christ, there is hope and rest. So Paul's aim is not only to inspire, it is also to correct. Let us not sit around and wait for the return of Christ instead of working as the Thessalonians did. Let us not ignore the law of God because I'm already forgiven, so what does it matter if I sin? Christ is going to wash all of this away at the end. That's kind of how the Corinthians were behaving. Don't flaunt your arrogance over those who don't act, or who we don't think of as elect. When there is time yet for the Spirit to move in their lives, when there is time yet to share the gospel with them and to, to plead with them in, Christ's, um, in, in, in the name of Christ. Expecting the blessings of the new Jerusalem now when the time has not yet come is a way for us to grow tired and weary of doing what is good. We'll wear ourselves out if we're always thinking of heaven and we're not seeing the goodness of God at work in us right now. This is, in some ways, friends, like the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son had a good father. He had an inheritance waiting for him but he was not willing to wait for it. He was not willing to strive in the fields alongside his faithful brother. And so he demanded his inheritance now. And a Christian with an over-realized eschatology who's no earthly good because they won't apply their spiritual gifts to the good of the kingdom. They won't testify to the grace that has saved them. They have no heart for the lost. They have no conviction to follow the laws of God as an outflowing the good fruit of what God has done in their lives. Those Christians with an over-realized eschatology are in some ways like the prodigal son who wants the benefits of heaven now but doesn't want to wait for it. They just want to think about the good blessings. They don't want to think about the fact that we are called also blessed and gifted to suffer alongside Christ in the here and now. There is this already and not yet tension to the Christian who is still on earth. The world is not our home. We long for eternity. We will be hated by the world as we are here standing in the truth. But when we look to the promises of victory that Paul has lined out for us here, that should cause us not to retreat and to draw back within ourselves. It should cause us not to act lazy and to think of this life as a spiritual waiting room. The victory of Christ that is as good as done should cause us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord and thinking rightly about our labors regardless of the outcomes. This is the right kind of realized eschatology. The right kind of realized eschatology draws encouragement, peace, and power to face every challenge that a believer will, who's still on mission for the Lord might have to face in this life. And so as we begin to put our hearts and minds on the sacrament of the Lord's table that's before us today, let us think about it in those terms. Let us draw from the suffering of Christ the grace that we need to suffer as well for the things that he has given us the faith to believe in.